So we're continuing um, our gentle walk um, through the Gospel of John, one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus. And um, we are um, using as a sort of an excuse for picking a particular thread through this theme of light. And uh, we're thinking about the fact that John, time and again, comes back to the idea of Jesus as the light of the world. And it doesn't matter where you look in John, in a sense, wherever you slice it, this theme of light and dark, uh, the noonday or the afternoon, uh, coming by night, coming by day, comes up again and again. Of course, we had right back at John chapter 1, that that big statement that we hear again and again, Jesus is the light of the world and uh, uh, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never put it out. And here again, in in John chapter 8, we have Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. But when Jesus says that, he's not just saying it um, in a vacuum. He's saying it standing in a particular place at a particular time in the midst of a particular feast, uh, a particular celebration. And the combination of those gives a whole different um, aspect to why he was saying that he was the light of the world. He wasn't simply plucking an idea out of the air, a nice image for God coming and doing something. He was saying something very specific, not just about who he was, but also about what it means to be a follower of his. And the thing it had to do with is the sort of place that, um, well, who? Bear Grylls would be most at home. Now, clearly, Bear Grylls is um, uh, who I model myself on uh, most closely. And uh, uh, you you know him. He's the the survivalist, and uh, he takes, these days, a ex-SAS soldier and who now... Uh, makes a living basically by taking celebrities and actually most recently the President of the United States out into these very dangerous environments that are presumably insured and um, safety roped up to the nth degree or else they wouldn't be able to make the programme and teaching them survival skills. Um, I, I'm somewhat in awe of pretty much every aspect of what he does. But one of the things that is very clear about him is that he has a very, very well-developed sense of danger. Now, it seems an odd thing to say about somebody who's very, very obviously courageous. But when you see him actually in action, it's very clear that he doesn't look at the sort of environment and think, oh, yeah, easy. Actually, part of the skill of survival in the wilderness is to have an incredibly clear sense of danger. What's dangerous, what isn't? What, if I do this, then this is going to happen. If I eat that, that is going to happen. If I go down there, it's dangerous because of that. And alongside a very clear sense of danger in the wilderness he also has a very clear ability to match the resources that are at hand with the danger that he sees. Actually, when you think about it, what could be more awful than to know that somebody who has perhaps been in the wilderness themselves and has maybe got themselves terribly lost to the point of disaster could have actually found their way if they'd only looked at the sun or looked at the stars and known what to do with them? What could be worse than finding that somebody has literally starved to death for lack of food in the wilderness when actually a few feet away from them was something that could have provided them sustenance if only they'd known to look and to take it? Or somebody who has dehydrated to the point of of disaster when actually just a few inches below the soil or a few feet behind a rock was some water that could have quenched their thirst? For something like Bear Grylls, the trick is both to see the danger, to know it, but also have to the eyes to see the resource that's there. And it seems to me that um, actually what happens between Jesus and the Pharisees is the clash between Jesus, who both saw the danger. That's why all this talk about death, it's quite jarring 
That's why I got Ros to do the whole of that reading, because several times he says, you're going to die in your sin, and we, we wince a bit, because we don't like such harsh language. And the Pharisees, who didn't view it so much as a wilderness, as much as a, a sort of obstacle course. We'll come back to that. So where does the theme of wilderness come? Well, it comes because of the festival that the Jews were in the middle of celebrating right at that time. If you go back um, to the beginning of John 7, and just on the previous page, um, you'll find John 7, uh, verse 2, but when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near. So, um, the, the, a quick potted history of the Old Testament in about 30 seconds. You've got God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel. Uh, you have Abraham. Uh, who, before there was even a people of Israel, is given a, a promise by God. It's actually what they're doing in children's groups today, so ask your kids about it when they come out. God gives, them, uh, God gives him a promise and says, I will make of you a great nation. Now come on a journey with me. And they end up, uh, by, via a long sort of series of adventures and down through several generations, they end up in Egypt. And they end up in Egypt as a, a migrated immigrant people who now become so numerous that the the population of Egypt become, become very threatened by them. There are all sorts of echoes uh, for today's situations in Europe. And the people of Egypt enslave the people of Israel because they're frightened, they're going to take over. And the Pharaoh is terrified that he's going to lose his power. And in their slavery, they cry out to God. And God sends Moses. And you'll know through the ten plagues and through um, coming out through the Passover and the spilling of blood, there is a way through uh, the waters, out into the wilderness, and through the wilderness into the promised land. And that whole story of slavery and helplessness, rescued by God, travelling through the wilderness, and ending up in the promised land, that big story turns up again and again and again and again in Scripture. Almost wherever you look, there are echoes of it. All the prophets talk about it incessantly. The Psalms are absolutely full of it. The Gospels have Jesus using all sorts of language from it. And when you get into the the letters in the New Testament, the Christian life is described in exactly those terms. It's, if you like, a prototype of the big picture. It's written small in one nation's history is what God promises for the whole world. That is rescue from helplessness, a journey through the wilderness with God's accompaniment, to a promised land flowing with milk and honey. And because it was really what had formed them as a people, that meant that the people of Israel had these major festivals that marked these high points in their history. So the one that perhaps we know the best is the Passover, which marked the, the rescue, the rescue out of Egypt, the spilling of blood. So there's a lamb that is slain and there's blood daubed on the doorposts uh, and there's special food that's eating and, and the story is retold. So of course the the meal that becomes for us our communion. A meal of another rescue, the great rescue that Jesus brings by his blood rather than the blood of a lamb. But then there's another festival, and it's that this festival that Jesus comes to, the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. And the Feast of Tabernacles um, wasn't so much about the Exodus, though it took that for granted. That was, if you like, the foundation on which it stood. It was the story of the wilderness. It reminded them of how God had provided for them, because it was actually a harvest festival, and had walked with them through the wilderness. Now, they'd been incredibly vulnerable. They weren't a big people. They didn't have, um, you know, mounted um, you know, horsemen and chariots and spears. They really were a ragtag bunch of slaves that had escaped from Egypt. They were incredibly vulnerable in the middle of a wilderness desert. Sinai Desert uh, is not a great place to wander around, even uh, if you've got all your survival equipment, let alone as a nomadic tribe. And what God did for them 
was both to provide for them and to protect them and accompany them. Now, he provided for them, um, famously, if you read uh, the book of Exodus, um, in bread and water. There was the water that came from the rock and the water that was um, freshened in the pool. You may know those stories, if not, really worth a read. And there was the bread, the manna, in the desert that God provided. God provided for them when they had nothing else. But then he also walked with them and protected them. And that was symbolized in what was called the Shekinah glory of God. A pillar of cloud that went ahead of them by day. And a fantastic fire that went ahead of them and surrounded them by night. That was the the language of that story of God going with them through the wilderness, providing for them every step of the way in water and bread and at one point quail, and of walking with them in his glory. Now, this is how this works out in John. John is an incredible writer, an absolutely incredible writer. He doesn't just slam down story after story, oh, I remember this, I remember this, let me tell you about this. He's got a very, very strong storyline and a very clear sense of structure to the book of John. And one of the structures is right here in John 6, 7, and 8. Because what you find in John chapter 6 is Jesus saying that he is the bread of life, the manna in the wilderness. Then in John chapter 7, he actually arrives at the temple and the Feast of Tabernacles. And what does he talk about? He talks in verse 37 um, of chapter 7. He says that he is the water of life. He was thirsty, come to me. Bread in the wilderness, water in the wilderness, just as they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And then now, verse 12 of chapter 8, it's light. Now the particular thing about light is that on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles... They said they did two major things. My understanding is, I'm still a bit of a beginner with all of this, but my understanding is that on that final day, they both had a festival that involved water, which was to remind them of the water from the rock, which is what we hear in um, Jesus standing in front of and saying, you see this water over here? I am the water of life. I'm the living water. And then they lit this incredible set of um, candles. Now, I mean, I don't know how to describe it. Candles just... I suppose the best we can imagine is when we fill this church full of candles at Christmas with those candelabra. Well, these these candles apparently made what our wonderful candelabra look like little tea lights in comparison. They look four huge candle stands. And the writers of the time say that they were so huge and they blazed so brightly that you could see them from virtually every part of Jerusalem. Uh, the, The temple was up on a hill. And they were so bright. And they reminded people of the glory of God shining out and going with them. And Jesus stands there and he says, I am the light of the world. Bread in the wilderness to sustain you when you're at your end. Water to refresh you when you're run dry. And light to guide and protect you through the wilderness. And notice, not just for Israel, and this is the huge shift of gear from old to new in terms of uh, prototype to real. He says, I am the light of the world. It's what Isaiah was promising, the prophet. We read the, the reading at Christmas, amongst other times, when Isaiah says, there will come a leader, there will come a great servant, the Lord, who will come, and he will be a light to lighten the Gentiles. For those who walk in darkness, a light has dawned. Remember that reading from the, the Lessons and Carols? And Jesus is saying, I'm that light. Not just the light of God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel, but the light of the world for everyone. So why were the Pharisees so against 
what he was saying? I think for two reasons. The first was that he was challenging their place as being top dogs in this hierarchy. And secondly, they were challenging, he was challenging their worldview about what this world was like. Remember I said before that they wouldn't have viewed this world as so much of a wilderness as an obstacle course. Something to be conquered. Something to be achieved. And of course when you hear Jesus say, whoever follows me, it's easy to start to think in those terms. If you follow a diet, you follow a series of steps in the hope of achieving something. And by your hard work, by your determination and your self-discipline, you achieve something at the other end. Or in my case, generally, not so much. When you follow a religious leader of the classic variety, you're trying to be like them so that, generally in religion, you can be a bit closer to God, God can think a bit more of you, you can reach that spiritual state that you're aiming for. It's an obstacle course. You do your best, you get more and more skillful at it. There are some people who are better than others. You achieve something. It's perhaps a little bit of what the Pharisees were thinking. But if you go back to the story of the Old Testament, you realise that the Pharisees had it completely the wrong way around. They were imagining somehow that God would rescue them if they followed him. Whereas when you read the story of the Exodus... It was that they were meant to follow him because he'd rescued them. It's worth saying that again, perhaps. The Pharisee had got it into the head that maybe God would rescue them because they were following him, because they were really doing a good job of living life. It's what people talk about. I, I live a Christian life. I live, try and live a good life. I try and do my best. Maybe God will think okay of me. Whereas actually, when you read the Exodus, the whole point of the Exodus is, in Egypt, they were completely helpless. They had nothing to offer God. They were a ragtag bunch of slaves absolutely nothing to offer. In fact, Ezekiel, I've mentioned this before, Ezekiel the prophet, um, his picture language for Israel before God rescued them was he said, you were like a newborn baby, naked and abandoned by the side of the road. He basically picks the most helpless image he can possibly imagine, an abandoned newborn baby, naked by the side of the road. And he said, and God was passing by and he looked at you and he said, live. You were that helpless is what he's saying. You had nothing to offer God. So God rescued you of his own volition, of his own choice, out of slavery in Egypt. And because he'd rescued you, he then said, now follow me through the wilderness. Why do you follow? Well, not to make God rescue you, not to make God love you, but because you've been rescued, because you've been loved. And because if you're in a wilderness, how stupid would it be to not go where the bread and the water and the light is? How terrible would it be to be lost in the wilderness of life and to try and do it on your own? How appalling would it be to look back at a life lived solo when you'd been inches away from a stream of living water, when you'd been a couple of feet away from bread that would nourish the soul, when you'd had your eyes shut to the light that brings life to all? It's what Jesus is saying. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's saying we desperately need what he had to offer. This isn't an optional extra. That's why he uses this language of dying. He's saying, actually, without me, you are gradually dying in your sin. How terrible would that be to miss out on the source of all life and light? 
Now, there's another irony at the heart of this. The irony at the heart of this is that they thought they had him on trial. I don't mean a formal trial. That comes about 12 chapters later in John when he's up before Pilate. But, but in that conversation, they were putting him on trial. It, the, the rest that Ros read was really them going, how do you know? How can you prove it? Are you sure? Prove it to us. Actually, what you find in John is that the people on trial are them. The question actually being asked of them as they interact with Jesus is, are you following? Have you come to the light of life? Are you being nourished by the bread from heaven? Are you drinking from the water? Or are you dying in your sin? It's what Jesus is offering them. Not because you have to be good enough for God, but because God was good enough for you and now wants to walk with you through the wilderness of this life to a life in the world to come that we get to taste now in our relationship with him, that we get to anticipate in our worship together, in the times when we're able to transform uh, society or relationships or families and that we look forward to. So maybe the question for us is to ask, how do we view the life that we're living? Do we view it as an obstacle course that we simply have to work extra hard to get our way through? That actually if you can just put enough oomph into life, if you can try hard enough, pray enough, go to church enough, do enough, be a good enough Christian, it'll be okay. And actually if you can't, and maybe you've got to this point in life, you think, well, I've been trying that for 20 years, I've, I've, I'm done. Or do you view life as a wilderness where you are not on your own? That can be hard, can be thirsty, can make you hungry and tired, but where there is a source of living water, of bread from heaven, of a light that guides and protects us. In what ways do we, every day, Monday through Friday, whether it's school or at work or at a desk, looking after kids, sitting at home, whatever it is we're doing, Do we come back to those resources? Do we actually feed on Christ? Do we drink from the wells of the Spirit? Do we open our eyes in prayer and in reading the Bible to the light that he brings? And if not, well, then we're effectively stuck in a desert, on our own, relying on our own resources. We'll survive for a bit. But we're missing out on the one who wants to accompany us through. 